Hello, and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, and I am joined by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I can't complain. I've been looking forward to taping this podcast all week. It's definitely a, a fascinating one, dealing with murder, macabre, mayhem, and the like, so... There's nothing but excitement from my end this week. Good, good. I'm excited. So, so what do you week, have in store for us this week? So this week, we're going to discuss a bed and breakfast. Um, bed and breakfasts are often known to be idyllic, charming, and restful. But in this instance, we're going to look at a case where none of that was true. It all started on September 1st, 2006, which was Labor Day weekend. He was at the spacious eight-bedroom Black Bear Bed and Breakfast in New Remain. Uh, for unknown reasons, uh, Christian Charles Nielsen, a sometimes cook, shot 50-year-old James Whitehurst, who had been living at the bed and breakfast and did occasional handyman work for the owner. He then partially dismembered the body and lit it on fire in a separate wooded area in Upton and then buried him in a shallow grave. Wow, he really couldn't figure out exactly what he wanted to do with that body, it seems. No, it, yeah, he definitely took it a little bit far. He, you know didn't quite get the dismemberment all the way down i think it was probably a panic what do i do with this how do i get rid of this now you mentioned bed and breakfast being an idyllic and charming restful place have you ever visited one uh personally yourself or i have um it was really nice it was very personable I like I like it, but it, I also don't like it. The the thing that I like about it is that it is like it's charming and quaint and you're you know, you have breakfast with other people and things. That's also the reason I don't like them, because it's just very much like you have to deal with people. And sometimes I don't like dealing with people. Well, I can't I can't blame <laughs> you there. I've never had the pleasure of actually staying at a bed and breakfast. I guess the closest that I would have while being here in Europe, I've stayed at hostels where you're sharing a room with people, you're sharing bathrooms with people, common areas. And yeah, to be quite frank, I wasn't the biggest fan. I like my privacy. Mm -hmm. But whenever I see bed and breakfasts on like an American television show or in a movie, they're always these cute, quaint, you know, the idea of it seems really, really cool. I just, I feel that for me personally, the idea of it is much better than the actuality of it. But since it's not something that I had personally experienced, I was just wondering what your take on it might be. So thank you for I that. Yeah, I kind of want to go to the um, Lizzie Borden bed breakfast. Oh, wow. That would be that would be really cool. Yeah. In fact, if you do that, if you do that, we need to do an episode on Lizzie Borden while yeah. you are there. That would be amazing. That would be awesome. So let's put a pin in that. and. Uh, Stay tuned, viewers, for future episodes. <laughs> yes, definitely. And so we talked about how he had partially dismembered it, lit it on fire, um, and then buried him in a shallow grave. I don't think people realize how difficult it is to dig a grave. Not that I've done it, but it's just backbreaking work, and it's really difficult to get depth and sizing and everything without breaking a huge sweat. So I'm going to definitely back you up on that. So, you know, while it 
I haven't necessarily dug a grave. I've dug foxholes and fighting positions, and they are definitely, definitely backbreaking work. And in the army, you do everything in pairs, everything with a buddy team. So, like, while well, one of you digs, the other one, you know, watches and whatnot. These were all only ever in training scenarios uh, for the digging. I mean, there wasn't much to to dig out in the sandboxes. But when we were doing training, it it is absolutely brutal work and this isn't a guy that had been training himself to do it so yeah in fact i I still get back aches from (laughs) from digging those (laughs) things so uh yeah you're definitely right it's we see it in movies where they have the grave digger out in the graveyard right and he's just trilling along singing and having a good old time and i think we kind of take for granted how how much that really sucks yeah luckily a lot of that's automated now they don't have people having to dig graves anymore so that's a plus true True. the backhoe is a great invention yes so after he did all of this a couple days passed september 3rd nielsen shot 65 year old julie bullard who is the owner her daughter selby bullard age 30 and her friend cindy beatson age 43 showed up unexpectedly he shot them as well killing all three and for some reason he also killed three dogs Oh, so, yeah, this guy just keeps on piling on win after win, doesn't he? Yeah. He used various tools, like a hacksaw, an axe, and a chainsaw to dismember the bodies. So, again, it seems like he hadn't quite perfected his his methods there. Yeah. Since it seems that everybody that came up to this place ended up on his to-kill list, how, how did they eventually catch this guy? So eventually his father, Charles Nielsen, uh, called the authorities after becoming suspicious of him. He'd shown up at the property after his son told him that Julie had gone to California and left him in charge. But he saw a trail of blood and had his doubts about the story. Well, I mean, that's kind of kind of a red flag, isn't it? Like quite literally. Yeah. I mean, for one, just having the owner saying that, you know, that he's in charge, that would be a red flag. Yeah. On top of, you know, especially since he was sometimes a worker and he didn't really, he was kind of, the way that I kind of imagine him is kind of low kilter to the ground. He's not really doing a whole lot with his life. I would agree with that from everything that I've also read. I I mean, his father would know him as well as anybody would. The guy wasn't exactly a social butterfly, but it, it does kind of make you wonder, like, he he knew that people were coming up, like the daughter, the daughter's friend, and he still didn't take the time to at least, you know, clean up the blood or or really make any sort of effort to to hide what he was doing. This is right aside from dismembering the bodies, but that may not have been a, a tactic to hide them or anything. That may have just been something that he was experimenting with. Exactly. That's kind of how I feel about this, is that the dismemberment wasn't, and the burning of the body and whatnot, it wasn't necessarily him trying to cover his tracks, but maybe this kind of macabre fascination that he had with killing and murder and, you know, just seeing how far he could take this. We do see that with other serial killers as well, where the dismemberment and whatnot wasn't necessarily to cover their tracks, but rather to get some sort of, you know, bonus extra out of this. And that's exactly what I'm feeling when I when I read this case as well. Yeah, exactly. 
And he admitted to the murders. He didn't try and hide the fact that he did it or anything like that. When state trooper Dan Hansen asked him what was going on, he said, and I quote, well, I killed some people, Dan. I shot them all. The guns in the house in the tools chest. Wow. That's, again, I mean, we, we've talked in, in a previous episode about the possibility of false confessions and whatnot. But again, this is pretty straightforward. He's saying, yeah, this is what I did. And this is this is where you find it. I mean, he wasn't really under duress or anything at the time. So. No, he didn't arrest, or he didn't resist arrest, um, and he even took them to James Whitehurst's body. I mean, smoking gun victims, I I mean, really the only thing missing here is a motive. Right, and he didn't have a motive. Um, Some speculated that James and Julie were in the beginning of attempts to evict him for not paying his rent, as he'd recently begun staying there. And he basically, all he did is he told police that he had finally decided to kill after thinking about it for years. So that kind of feeds back into what we were discussing earlier about having this dread fascination with murder and dismemberment and and whatnot, where I don't know if I would necessarily say this is capital murder because he planned to kill these people specifically. But it does definitely seem like this was something that was on his radar for quite some time. And I mean, he's the only one that knows why he finally decided to go ahead and pull the trigger, literally. But yeah, it's... It's, it's, it's weird, though, because he worked at a different bed and breakfast and he had a really good reputation there. He talked about quitting college to join the military and everything. So he was also a cook at the other bed and breakfast, I believe. And going to college and whatnot, again, like the more you do read about him, the more you find out that he didn't have obviously his his life together as much. But it, it seems like he understood well enough to at least fool everybody around him that he had at least some semblance of normalcy going on. Right. After he confessed more or less what what did the police and the prosecutors and and his legal team try to do with this so he was arrested obviously Um, his legal team tried to pursue an insanity defense but in order to plead insanity you have to not know right from wrong or be able to understand what you're doing or act on uncontrollable impulse and prove that with evidence okay so so it's not enough that he was mentally unstable like there were definitely statutes that had to be met that Yes. Okay. Yes. So he underwent evaluation. His mental health was not good, but two psychologists concluded that he suffered from schizoid personality disorder, as well as possibly being neurodivergent. But it didn't prove that he was insane. It just proved that he was mentally unstable. Which, again, like this is, well, not necessarily again, but it's it's interesting that you do see a pattern. A lot of serial killers, they, they say, are, are schizophrenic. Most are neurodivergent. Perhaps the scariest ones aren't, but yeah, it, it definitely, I had also read that uh, they suspected that he might have been, uh, had Asperger's as well. Right. Which again, it's it's not an excuse for what happens, but it kind of gives you an insight into why he could have been hyper fixated on these particular things. Right. Yeah, it would make sense. So Diana Taylor, who is James Whitehurst's sister, uh, she said that she views Nielsen not as insane, but as a calculating killer and likened him to the devil. She said, and I quote, when I first saw him on TV, he had this smirk on his face like, look what I did, people. To see the person that that did something so horrendous to a family member and to see what she's seeing as no remorse. I mean, she's seeing it through the lens of her grief, which mm-hmm. I can't say really anything to that her perception is her reality 
and her seeing the man that not only shot her brother, but then what he did to his body was not not good. Uh, it's the easiest and the nicest way to put it. It was terrible. And right. she's seeing this guy with a, a smirk on his face and then saying, oh, wait, I couldn't have known what I was doing. I can only imagine the grief that that had to have put her through. Right. Yeah. And it's terrible to just you have to go through all of this through the media as well. And that adds another layer of terribleness to it. Now, in his in his trial, though, did you find that he was remorseful or emotional at all about what he was going through? No, he was emotionally detached during the hearing and he didn't even aid in his own defense. The judge agreed that he seemed disinterested and it was frustrating for his legal team. But the legal standard is whether a defendant can cooperate or not, whether they are actually cooperating. And that's what he said in his ruling. He said, while it's certainly unfair to subject a defendant to trial when he lacks the capacity to take part in his own defense, it is not unfair to subject him to trial when he simply chooses to not take part. So do you think that perhaps he was acting disinterested or not taking part in his legal defense to further convince the judge or the jury of his mental capacity, perhaps? You know, or- I- I think I think it was probably all, you know, he maybe he was disinterested, but I know that he while he was in Cumberland County Jail, he dropped his weight from 158 to 130 pounds and the jail was given permission to force feed him. But before they could insert the tube, he actually began eating on his own. On top Mm. of that, in December of 2006, he used a disposable razor to carve the letter X onto his scalp. And because of that, he was placed on suicide watch. So it kind of reeks of some Manson-ish Which, hab- habits there. You you can't discount that either. We've, we've seen copycat serial killers and copycat killers. The further we go with this podcast, the more I'm sure that we'll delve into that. That is exactly what I thought when I read this as well, When especially about the disposable razor carving the letter X onto his scalp. That's very reminiscent of when Manson carved the the swastika into his forehead, stuff like that. that, That's exactly the feeling that I got as well. And also when I read that the jail was as soon as the jail was given permission to force feed him, that he started eating on his own to avoid that. To me, that showed that he understood the consequences of those actions and did not wish to suffer those consequences because a feeding tube is not pleasant. Yeah. That was kind of the the kicker to me. Now, being able to to drop 55 pounds, I wish I had that capacity and that willpower. But to me, the more you read about that, the more that it screamed that it was an act to me. Right. And actually, the day before the trial began, the insanity plea was dropped and he pled guilty. So he accepted a, a plea deal to avoid... A worse sentence, it seems like. Yeah, he got life in prison. Um, he was sentenced on October 18, 2007, and he's currently serving his sentence at the Maine State Prison. So, but. yeah, it's again, it's it's interesting to me because he he pled guilty. He got life imprisonment. Normally, you do that to receive a lesser sentence. That's that's the whole reason you plea bargain. However, the state of Maine does not have capital punishment. In fact, it was one of the first states that abolished capital punishment back in 1887. So 
again the 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 guy he just he makes he makes so little sense to me over and over again it it, to me it doesn't scream insanity it screams incompetence yes you know what good thing that he's behind bars because this the 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 psychologist that's been interviewing him is still interviewing him in fact from uh, one of the original two that declared what he was has consistently said that even to this day you know which so what, 17 years later, he still has no idea what makes this guy tick or why he did what he did. My heart really goes out to the family on that because, I mean, what, what do you do? What do you do at that point? You're, there, there's no closure. You're waiting for, for information that you'll likely never receive. Right. It's hard to get closure when you don't have answers. Now, earlier in this podcast today, you had mentioned a Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. So... Mm-hmm. That's something where they took the Lizzie, the Lizzie Borden house and they turned it into something else. Do you know yes. what has happened to this bed and breakfast currently? So I tried to find the information. Um, so the address is 829 Sunday River Road in Newry. It's not currently for sale. And in 2009, new owners requested to convert the property into four condos since running it as a bed and breakfast was impossible with its association to the murders. Their request was denied. I'm not sure why. I couldn't find out why it was denied. And it's unknown what the property is being used for now. So digging into that as well, I found out that they have done two appeals. And last I heard, the last one is still pending. But it has to do with zoning. They they have to rezone it for a new zoning code for it to be used as condominiums instead of the bed and breakfast that it's being run as now. Kind of interesting i don't i don't really understand the city's reasoning behind it either it just seems i guess a bit macabre as well if you know the lizzie borden has this almost cult-like following around the case and whatnot so perhaps that has a bigger draw whereas this maybe it's too new it's too fresh but i i can't help but imagine that there would be some group of people that would be fascinated to to see this and to learn more about the case. Right. I mean, I think our podcast is kind of testament to that. You know, we I would I would go stay there. I I think I would too. Again, not to glorify what had happened there, but to try and better understand it because again, this 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 guy until he snapped, nobody saw it coming. And he didn't um, snap for any specific reason that anybody could find. Exactly. This is this is just it seems so random. The more you you read into it, the more you delve into it, the more it just doesn't it doesn't make as much sense as some of the other killings do. People know all about like the the big serial killers, the John Wayne Gacy's, the Ted Bundy's, and they all can sort of point to a moment where, okay, this is where we saw the the snap. This is where things went wrong. And with this guy, it's like he he slept on the wrong pillow or or something. I it, it's really hard to figure that out. Yeah, and he seemed fairly low energy from the start. You know, he didn't have a lot of aspirations as far as you know being he was a cook at a bed and breakfast, and he was only there part time. He was kind of he kind of reminds me of a grifter, but not quite since he was in college. Yes, um, I think that's actually a really really good way to put it on there. I think that's a yeah, good observation. So just confusing to have him just all of a sudden decide to do these activities and then kind of go back to being low energy again. He was like, okay, I'm done. Well, and now to, to put Nuri into perspective, right? Nuri is very much just a resort town. 
It's in Maine. Okay. It was first settled back in 1781. All it was back then was a plantation that was founded by four gentlemen. However, the next year, natives raided and plundered it, and it sat unused for 11 or 12 years. Then this guy named John Holmes buys it, and he, he leaves it to his sister, who's named Bostwick. She makes it into Bostwick's plantation. And then about 11 years later, a bunch of Irish settlers from what is now Northern Ireland renamed it Newry because that was the town they were from. The thing with Newry is, is the the biggest this town has ever been was in uh, the 1860s, where it reached a population of 474 people. At the time the murders took place, there were about 340, 350 people living there. There is a skiing resort there. But again, that's uh, that's why this there was a bed and breakfast established there, because that was really the only way the locals could make money. And they do make good money there doing it. But this was definitely in the off season. This was September. Sure, you have leafers that go through New England and want to look at all the pretty leaves and whatnot, but there's not. So so for these murders to happen, like it, it, it definitely shook the town pretty hardcore. You want to talk about small town America where you don't have to lock your doors at night. You're right. thinking Newry. Again, where you and I come from is very, very sparsely populated, but the town we came from is is gigantic in comparison to this place. Oh, yeah. 50,000 people in comparison. Yeah. So, again, it's and most of the people there actually are pretty, pretty well off. I think there's a five percent poverty rate in the in the in the town even now. So, yeah, most people are pretty well to do there. There are a couple little sites there. Like I said, there's a a ski resort. The Sunday River Ski Resort is what it's called. There's a state park that's just north of town, the Grafton Notch State Park. There's a really, really pretty covered bridge. And that's that's really about it. So you go there to see leaves and to ski, and that's it. So people that grew up there really, I mean, you everybody knows everybody. So right. to say that this would have been a shock is putting it mildly at best. Yeah, so, for sure. But, I mean, there is, I suppose there's there's still hope that this guy can give people some closure at some point in time. I, I wouldn't hold my breath on it, but yeah. he's not terribly old either. He's 10 years my senior, so... Well, almost nine years and like 11 months, but 10 months. So he's he's in his, you know, late 40s, not to age myself too much. But yeah, he's uh, he's still up there and they're still trying to figure stuff out. So, you know, if there is an update, we'll let you guys know for sure. But until then, just like everybody else, I guess we'll just have to wait. Yeah, man, that was a case that that was that was crazy. This was an interesting one for sure. Definitely. So, Rebel, do you have a missing persons for us this evening? I do. So tonight we'll look at the disappearance of Nevaeh Kingbird. And she's uh, last seen on October 22nd, 2021. She was 15 years old. And her location is Bemidji. Bemidji, Minnesota. Minnesota. She was the third of six siblings. And she was a member of the Leak Leach Band of Ojibwe of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe in, in the Red Lake, Minnesota Reservation. So she can speak Ojibwe uh, as well as English. At the time of her disappearance, she was living with her family in the area of Carter Circle in southeast Bemidji, and she was a freshman in high school with plans to go to college in Colorado after graduating. Mm-hmm. So she, on the night that she disappeared, which was again October 21st, 2021, she told her mother that she planned to spend the night with friends at the movies. But around 1 a.m., she, the mother returned home from work to find Nevaeh with a half a dozen intoxicated teenagers, which, I mean, she was 15, so 
that kind of stuff happens, I guess. Yes. Yes, it does. I remember my teenage years fondly and not so fondly sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I don't remember it as well as I should. Yeah. So she attempted to confront her daughter, but another teen interviewed, intervened and pushed her away. So the mom returned to her car to call 911, but Nevaeh and her cousin left through the back door before police arrived. She never returned home and she hasn't been heard from since. Her mother filed a missing persons report when she couldn't contact her. Did, so, the, did the authorities learn anything about what happened after she left through the back door of her mother's house? So she was running with another girl after leaving her mother's house, and they climbed through a window of a juvenile acquaintance's trailer in a nearby trailer park. But then they were forced to leave when the juvenile's father asked them to go home. So she's last seen jumping out of the window, falling onto the ground, and hitting her head before running off into the night. Oh, man. And she left her phone behind in the trailer. So her phone and social media have had zero activity since she disappeared. So initially she was reported as a runaway but now it's a concern because obviously nobody had been in contact with her since October. So according to her family, Nevaeh had recently lost two friends to suicide in the same year and she was struggling with grief. She had bipolar disorder and previously experienced manic episodes. Okay, so she jumps out of the window and hits her head and runs off into the night more or less. And we haven't heard anything about her since. Wow. And she's struggling with you know, losing two friends, depression, bipolar disorder. Hopefully she found some friends and is just, you know, laying low and not knowing what to do. Right. Going However, on almost two years, though. It, it has. In fact, at the time of this release, it should be right about at two years. So if anybody out there has heard anything, please, who should they contact, Rebel? The Bemidji Police Department. Phone number is 218-333-9111. Excellent. And please don't hesitate. Her, her family is obviously desperately wanting any kind of information, even if it's not necessarily a reuniting, just knowing that she's okay would go a long way to easing their suffering right now. And we'll post a link to this in the show notes so that people can review. There's a photo of her online as well. Absolutely. We'd uh, rather her being found than ending up on our show. So yes. absolutely. Well, Rebel, this has been one heck of an episode. Yeah, it's been a very interesting ride. So we will be back again next week. Next week will be our Halloween episode, I believe. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully big things coming. And we'll catch you on the next one. Yeah, and if you want to follow us on social media, you can see us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok under Murderosity. Um, and if you have any tips or, you know, cases that you'd like to hear us talk about, you can email us at Murderosity at gmail.com. Please don't hesitate. We're always looking for the incredibly obscure, macabre, mysterious, murderous cases. So, yes. and even missing persons cases. You know, if you have anybody that you have that's a loved one missing in your life, you can email us and we will feature them in more episodes as well. More than happy to do that. Well, thank you again, Rebel. It's been a it's been a pleasure as always, and we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, Bob. Thank you.